Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Jack Burns, who is a professor in the Department of Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences at the University of Colorado, Boulder. He is also Vice President Emeritus for Academic Affairs and Research for the CU system. Welcome, Jack. Well, thank you, Gil. It's good to be with you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So you and your team are deeply involved in the upcoming uh, NASA missions to the moon, including um, the design to place a radio frequency observatory on the far side of the moon. Um, and we haven't been really back there for almost 50 years now. I know that uh, China uh, has landed. I was actually looking at some photographs that just came through today from uh, from their lander. I know that Israel and India almost got there, but seem to have failed to land properly. Um, and so, so what's our interest? What's our sudden interest in going back to the moon after 50 years? Yeah, I don't know that I would characterize it as a sudden interest. I think on the part of the science community and really the exploration community, the interest has been there for a while. But what has changed in the last decade is the costs of um, doing missions um, and the accessibility of the moon in this new era um, in which we have now private companies like SpaceX and like um, the uh, Blue Origin company, Jeff Bezos company, um, yeah. they've put considerable private resources in developing new rockets uh, with reusability to lower the launch costs. Uh, and also the, the technology, which was extreme in the 1960s to try to get to the moon, and all had to be invented from scratch, now is relatively straightforward. Uh, Gil, as you mentioned, uh, even um, uh, small countries like Israel, uh, private companies um, have contracts with NASA to fly payloads. So now it's, it's, it's realizable to um, envision going to the moon at a relatively uh, modest cost, certainly in comparison to the 60s and 70s. Yeah, so that's a it's a very interesting phenomenon now. It's it's almost like a business model question, right? So there is SpaceX, there is a Blue, what is it, Blue Horizon? Blue Maybe. Origin. A Blue Origin. And there is one other company, right? Was it Lockheed or something? Uh, well, Lockheed, ULA, the United Launch Alliance, which is a Lockheed and Boeing uh, com company yeah. as well. They all have these uh, new generation of uh, launch vehicles that are uh, capable of going to the moon. Yeah, so NASA, in some sense, outsourcing um, some of the transportation, right? To, uh, so have they made a selection or are they going to essentially have multiple companies do it? The, um, the plan is to have multiple companies, just like the um, commercial crew program 
uh, to the space station. There's Boeing and SpaceX. Um, and for the case of the moon, for the uh, uncrewed landers, that is landers that are just carrying payloads, um, NASA has identified about a dozen companies um, to be able to transport uh, payloads to the moon. And at the same time, they're also undergoing a competition right now. They've selected three companies to uh, design as part of a public-private partnership the next generation of human landers. So that's the same, mostly the same group. That is SpaceX, Blue Origin, uh, and the third one is uh, is Dynetics, which is a, a company in uh, Huntsville, Alabama. Right, right. So is NASA's goal here is... Um, are they are they going to take contracts from other other countries to to send payload to the moon in the future? Yeah, yeah. These companies, um, you know, the, the the way this is working now is NASA is buying services, so they're no longer buying rockets or landers, which they will then own and operate. Um, instead, the philosophy is um, to uh, buy a ride, for example, a seat. Uh, on a, a human lander or buy space for a payload. So these companies then are responsible for uh, indemnifying, um, making sure they have the uh, proper um, insurance for losses. Uh, they take um, uh, a good bit of the risk um, and, and then proceed along those lines. Now, what that means is that the companies then, they own the intellectual property, they own the landers, they own the rockets, they own the, uh, the other uh, transportation um, devices. So that means they can sell seats, they can sell payloads to, for example, the European Space Agency uh, or the Russian Space Agency or individual uh, companies. Um, that might want to um, uh, put a, a payload on the moon to do their own um, investigation in this kind of uh, lower gravity environment. So it's much more entrepreneurial uh, than what we had before. And it lowers the cost to the taxpayer for doing all of these things by, you know, the, the, the Artemis program, which is the new human program to the moon, the um, recently released costs to get the first um, woman and the next man to the moon uh, by 2024 is a factor of 10 less than the Apollo program. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I remember, Jack, um, I was involved a little bit on the economic side of the Next Generation Space Vehicle Program, 2000, 2001, 2002 timeframe. And this was a program, as you know, was supposed to replace the shuttle. And uh, we did not go forward uh, with it. And I guess, uh, so what was our arrangement with the Russian uh, system to get our astronauts into the space station? Yeah, the, uh, the problem was that you might recall um, the um, shuttle accident that um, occurred in 2003. Uh, and then yeah. President uh, George W. Bush uh, declared that uh, the shuttle really wasn't safe um, and that needed to be replaced. Um, and it took a while. You know, we're still in the process of, of uh, fully replacing it. The last shuttle launch was 2011, um, if I remember correctly. So in the meantime, in order to get to the space station, um, what we did is contract with the uh, Russians to use their Soyuz uh, spacecraft to go back and forth to the space station. So we have, what we did is to buy seats. Those seats cost about 75 or $80 uh, million. So they weren't cheap, but it got, it got us back and forth. Right, right. Yeah, so, so before we get into the details of the various moon missions, Jack, I have a philosophical question. So uh, in a regime where we have technology advancing, we have artificial intelligence really taking off, machines are getting a lot smarter. 
Um, what is sort of the basis for uh, sending humans? Um, could, could, could we not accomplish everything that human could do with machines? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm, I'm glad you answered that. You asked that question because, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I think what we're looking for uh, now is, is a, a really different mode for doing work on surfaces like the moon uh, or Mars. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, in that um, we, you know, unlike Apollo, where you had, you know, a single astronaut of geologists, such as um, astronaut Harrison Schmidt on Apollo 17, uh, doing classic field geology with a shovel, um, to now advancing in the 21st century, what we're going to do is, I like to say, we're going to bring um, Silicon Valley with us to the moon. So we're going to bring advanced robotics. Uh, that will be uh, teleoperated, that will use uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, uh, and will team with the astronauts so that they will, these, these uh, rovers uh, will do advanced scouting, they will identify interesting places. And then the role of the astronaut is to make, you know, critical decisions on uh, what to investigate, uh, what the samples look like. Um, I, I still think it's true, and I've been told uh, from my colleagues who are geologists, I'm an astronomer, uh, but who are, are planetary scientists and geologists, that um, the difference, for example, between, let's say, the, um, the uh, Curiosity rover on Mars and what it's been doing and having a human uh, on Mars, that the work that the Curiosity rover has done in the last seven years could be done in two days by a human geologist. Uh, that's the difference. And um, to also bring back, you know, better selected samples and so forth. So there's no replacing uh, humans, and that's not going to happen anytime soon. But you, you do. Your your point being, you only want to use the humans when you absolutely have to, because their time is valuable and they're expensive, um, and also. Uh, walking around even on the surface of the moon is dangerous because of uh, the, um, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, space radiation, micrometeorites and other possible dangers. But going into this new environment, I think what we're going to be able to do is reduce risk and improve efficiency. The, I, I, I don't remember the numbers, Jack, but a, a human... Uh, mission is about 10x the cost of uh, a non-human mission. Obviously, the the efficiency and, and it, like you say, what we get out of it is different. But just on the cost side, it's it's about a factor of uh, 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 magnitude different, right? You know, that's hard to say because robots still are very limited in what they can do. There are just so many things that only humans uh, can do. So uh, it's a little bit of apples and oranges, but yeah, you're probably right that on the ballpark, about a factor of 10, maybe even more, but there's also much more than a factor of 10 improvement in efficiency. Um, so, yeah. you know, those costs will balance out. Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously the advantage of a human is, um, you know, the, when the unexpected happens, <laughs> machine learning is fine uh, as long as you have a lot of data to teach a machine with. Uh, but when the unexpected happens, the machines uh, are not. Well, exactly. Data. The rover gets stuck. It suffers a mechanical problem that uh, if you have a human there, at least in the vicinity, can help fix it and move forward. There's, you know, I think about, for example, servicing of the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, and that was done five times by human astronauts. And um, the astronauts, such as John Grunsfeld, um, who did two of the servicing missions, was very clear that um, the telescope could not have been repaired and upgraded um, by anything other than humans because the, ta the complexity of the task, the um, ability to be able to get in and uh, to uh, make repairs, uh, make on-the-spot decisions, just, um, you know, there was no replacing that. Right, right. 
So hopefully humans have a few more years of uh, jobs. I think we've got many years, to tell you the truth. I, I think it's going to be, you know, in reading some of the literature, I think it's going to be uh, quite a long time, if ever, that we uh, have um, truly um, intelligent, self-aware machines that can operate um, with the same decision-making capability. They're very good at repetitive calculations, do an outstanding job. Uh, there, but um, you know, making creative, innovative, um, entrepreneurial decisions—you uh, know—we're we're nowhere close to that yet. Right, right. Uh, and so I know there are multiple missions being planned. Uh, some of it is with an international collaboration. So it's the first one that is supposed to take off. Is this uh, named Artemis? Yeah, Artemis is the new uh, name for the um, human missions to the moon. Um, Artemis in Greek mythology uh, was the sister of Apollo, um, the twin sister of Apollo. Uh, she's the goddess of the moon. So that's very appropriate since NASA has already declared that uh, for that first landing, um, which um, NASA has been planning uh, for 2024, um, would um, would have that first woman and the next man uh, on the surface, the first expedition by humans to the moon in the 21st century. So, so Artemis is like Apollo. Then it's it's the name of the program. The name of the program, and, uh, yeah, Artemis. exactly right. So, so under Artemis, you have multiple things going on. Um, and so do we have sort of a space station-like thing that is going to orbit the moon? Uh, yeah. In fact, that's under design and will be under construction in the next few years. It's called the Gateway, the Lunar Gateway. Um, and it's, it's not like the space station um, in the sense of being gigantic um, and um, being really limited to that single orbit. Um, the Gateway is really more of a spacecraft. It's going to have a propulsion system using a new generation of solar electric. Think of that as ion propulsion uh, system um, that will um, be piloted for you know, potential for uh, future use uh, in going to Mars. Uh, and it'll have just a couple of, of modules uh, that will be there. It will be a place where astronauts coming from the Earth uh, on the Orion spacecraft, which is the uh, it plus the space launch system, uh, is the heavy lift vehicle that will take astronauts to the moon. They will dock at the gateway, um, and then they will get into a reusable lander, um, go to the surface, uh, come back in that lander, and then the next crew that comes in will do the same thing. So you don't throw everything away like we did during Apollo in the 1960s. Again, the reusability idea is, um, is key to keeping the costs down. So, so it is modular. So can we attach, uh, as, as our ideas change in the future, can we attach more modules to it? We can. In fact, uh, the, the uh, Japanese space agency, JAXA, recently committed to uh, fly a module. Um, and NASA has invited others, such as the uh, Russian Space Agency, to think about um, attaching um, a module as well. So it definitely is modular that way. And um, you can add habitats, you can add uh, laboratories, um, and this can, can grow over time. But it's also, the, the idea is that it's gonna be long duration space flight. Um, and it's away from the Earth's magnetic field. So you've got the full radiation environment of what you would have going to Mars. So I think NASA all, also looks at this as a prototype of the vehicle that would be sent to Mars. Okay, so there were some um, conversations, Jack, I can't quite remember that um, to go to Mars, you would rather start off, start off from the moon. Is that still the thinking or that has changed? 
Uh, I don't think that's been decided, but there's some there's some potential real advantages of the, of the moon. First of all, launching from the moon versus the Earth, it requires uh, much less thrust, what, what we call delta V, that's a change in velocity, to uh, get off of there because uh, there's only one-sixth of gravity on the moon. And uh, secondly, if we're successful in mining uh, water from the moon, and we know now there's a considerable amount of water um, at the poles of the moon, um, that's hydrogen and oxygen. We can convert that potentially into rocket fuel. Um, you wouldn't have to bring that from Earth. So the costs associated with launching um, could be substantially reduced in doing this from the moon versus from the Earth. So people are actively working that right now and seeing if that um, might be the way to go. I kind of think that might end up being uh, how uh, missions to, um, to Mars are undertaken. Mm. So, so under Artemis, um, are there plans to actually create a habitat, um, a big enough habitat for people to stay for extended period of time? Yeah. So, so NASA has designs, and and, and once again, I should should mention this is this is all um, international. Uh, INSA is involved. The European Space Agency is involved um, in um, providing um, a module for the uh, service module for the Orion. Uh, it also will be working on the gateway. The Canadian Space Agency is providing the uh, robotic arm. Um, and the same will be true on the surface. Um, the idea is that the first few missions will uh, just get started. Uh, that first mission in 2024 is planned to go to the South Pole of the Moon, where we've never been to before. and um, uh, look at uh, the water ice situation there. But um, over time, by the end of the decade, the expectation is that we'll have multiple habitats and we'll have people staying there for long periods of time, kind of like the um, Antarctic station mm. that's run by the National Science Foundation, the uh, McMurdo uh, station, as it's called. Um, in which you have a number of scientists uh, come in and visit for anywhere from a few weeks to uh, staying for a year. So, so I remember when the Next Generation Space Vehicle Program was in progress, space tourism was a big, uh, big objective. I would imagine SpaceX and uh, Blue Origin and others uh, have this in their business plan. Um, so, so what's the transit time uh, to, to that uh, uh, to the gateway? Yeah, so um, it'll be somewhere between three and five days to get from the Earth. And you're right about the tourism. SpaceX already has identified a um, Japanese businessman, if I remember correctly, who has uh, bought a um, a ride not to the surface of the moon, but to orbit the moon on a SpaceX vehicle sometime in a, in a few years. But uh, it'll be you know three to five days to get to the gateway and then uh, another day to get down to the surface. So I fully expect by the end of the decade, especially given the accessibility to the moon by the private sector and by these uh, companies uh, that they will be selling seats to wealthy individuals to um, uh, spend a, uh, a summer holiday on the moon. Yeah, I mean, so if the, if the gateway is expandable, uh, perhaps the tax, taxpayers can make some money <laughs> through NASA. Well, it might be, yeah. I mean, but, but once again, this is the uh, transportation for the most part um, is probably not gonna be through NASA, but by these individual companies who own their own rockets, their spacecraft, and uh, they will sell seats to, um, to wealthy tourists. Yeah, yeah. And so um, you, you mentioned the European Space Agency, you mentioned the Canadian Space Agency. Um, so is this like the space station, a, a larger collaboration or those are the three major ones? Yeah, it, it, it is. And, and you're right, there are, um, Oh gosh, I, I, there's probably a dozen or so 
companies, uh, countries rather, that are involved in the uh, International Space Station. And NASA envisions this very much the same thing. Um, and first to first order, all of the, the countries that are involved in the um, International Space Station have been invited to become involved with the gateway. Um, and so, as I mentioned, several have accepted with, um, with enthusiasms. Others are still kicking that around. Mm -hmm. We'll take a quick break, Jack. When we come back, uh, I want to talk about the radio frequency observatory on the far side of the moon that you're designing. You bet. Sounds good. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. We are back. Uh, Jack, we are talking about the upcoming missions to the moon. Uh, some of the manned missions, some of some of the technology that we are sending up there. Uh, there is a uh, a gateway uh, which is uh, like the space station, but it has its own propulsion, its own solar-based uh, energy source, uh, and it's modular. Things could be attached to it. There are various objectives, including creating a a launch pad, so to speak. Uh, to go to Mars, uh, perhaps habitats that are large enough, uh, mining for water, mining for hydrogen and other things. Um, and so, so this program, um, the program is called Artemis. So it's going to be an Apollo-like program. And underneath Artemis, there are various things being planned, right? So what are the, what are the primary objectives um, of, of those various various uh, projects, I should say, under, under Artemis? Yeah, well, Gil, let me, let me start off by just um, looking at the difference with um, the Apollo program, because the Apollo program yeah. ended fairly abruptly um, right. once the political goals were reached, and it was never uh, really a sustainable program. So what uh, uh, NASA and I think all of the governmental space agencies are looking for is for Artemis to be the beginning of a sustained presence um, on the moon and in space and using the moon as a stepping stone uh, for uh, human and robotic exploration of the solar system, including getting to Mars. So the philosophy of Artemis is really quite different. So you're there to stay. Uh, so you need to figure out how to live off the land. Uh, right. So that does mean, as you were saying, mining some water, being able to grow crops, um, being able to manufacture um, equipments, um, mm -hmm. the habitats themselves uh, from the, um, from the, uh, the regolith or the soil material. So uh, using, you know, the, the kind of advanced manufacturing capability, 3D printing, uh, electrolysis. So that's a really different mm. approach. And it means that what will be worked on is uh, not just get there, put a flag in the ground, grab a handful of soil and return. Um, instead, it means, uh, you know, how do you figure out how to be there for the long haul. So um, that means then learning how to, um, to excavate, um, how to build, um, how to um, really maintain uh, life in a, in a certain sense of independence. Part of the reason you wanna do all of that is because that's exactly what's gonna be necessary for Mars. Because Mars is so far away um, that right away in the first human mission, they're going to have to do all of those things. So let's figure it out on the moon first, where we're still only three to five days away. Mm. Uh, do we know, uh, I, I guess we should know by now, uh, is the moon um, reasonably mineral rich, just like the Earth? 
Yeah, it is. It's in a it's in a different location, um, yeah. but the the um, the soil, the regolith, if you will, they don't have the same kind of um, iron uh, and nickel um, deposits. But all of the uh, these these materials, uh, magnesium, aluminum, um, are in the soil, and so you have to do some processing um, to extract that. But the techniques are well in hand. Uh, to be able to do that. Um, so everything from paving roads to building habitats are, um, are possible and must be made doable because that's what we're going to have to do on, on Mars as well. Yeah, so that is, that is clearly philosophically a very, very different thing. So we will excavate, um, we will refine materials, we will create components assemble, manufacture, uh, actually create a craft that could then take off to Mars or wherever? Well, maybe components of that. And once yes. again, the, the idea of, of, of doing that in the 1960s was real science fiction. Um, that just was not possible. And that's part of the reason that, you know, a, um, a, a lunar program wasn't maintained. Today, this is fact. This is, um, as I I said earlier, all of the technologies developed by uh, Silicon Valley um, and beyond are, um, we, we're going to take all of that to the moon with us and, and utilize it. Yeah, so that goes into the cost, like you mentioned, Jack. So uh, I think if I understood that correctly, Artemis program in today's dollars is about one-tenth of the Apollo program? Yeah, so the Apollo program was about 250 a billion dollars. Um, and NASA Administrator Bridenstine has requested $25 billion uh, through 2024. So that's not all in one year, but distributed out uh, to uh, do that first mission to the moon. And it may, the, the, the majority of the cost is we've already invested in the new rockets and the Orion spacecraft. So um, it is in, uh, for example, building the the new human rated landers and, and the gateway and the infrastructure. And how about the other countries? I know that China, India, Israel, Russia, uh, all are interested. Uh, how do their plans fit with ours? Um, I think overall, um, you know, they, they fit very well. Again, the, the collaborations we've had internationally with the um, International Space Station bode well for uh, this in the future, because we've already figured out how to do this, how to share resources, how to make sure that interfaces are common um, and um, that um, electronics, you know, work in the different environments. So that's, uh, that's well underway. The one country for political reasons that we don't work with in the US is China um, at this point, but you know, who knows, that might change in the next decade as well. Right, right. And uh, I, I, I understand, Jack, that most of the water is uh, on the far side, the side that we cannot see. Well, most of it's actually at the poles. Um, at the poles. Yeah, and so some of it is um, accessible, like um, uh, this Viper mission that NASA is going to send to the South Pole in advance of the Artemis human landing. Um, it is uh, close enough to the near side that there'll be direct radio communication from the South Pole to the Earth. And so, so is Artemis focus is going to be on the far side? Uh, no, not necessarily because there's um, interesting places to go to on the near side and the poles. Uh, certainly the far side is, that's unexplored territory. Uh, and the far side has a very interesting geological feature. It has something called the South Pole Aiken Basin, which is the largest, deepest, oldest uh, impact crater that we know of in the, uh, the inner solar system. Um, and scientists are just really eager to get in there and to sample uh, that um, location uh, because it's, it's gonna tell us about the early history of the formation of the moon, but also the formation of the earth. 
Are there any other benefits uh, such as lower levels of radiation or anything like that on the far side? Not lower radiation, but the other benefit is that it's it's quiet. It's radio quiet um, mm -hmm. on the far side of the moon. So from the Earth, we are limited in being able to do observations below oh roughly 100 megahertz or 80 megahertz so in other words below the fm band um, and uh, that's due to the earth's ionosphere um, which absorbs some of the radio radiation and refracts it uh, but it's also due to radio frequency interference um, and so there's a whole portion of the universe um, at radio frequencies that we've been unable to probe uh, from the Earth. But going to the far side where it's radio quiet, there is no ionosphere uh, around the moon. For the first time, we're going to open up an entirely new uh, epoch to um, investigate the very early universe. Yeah, so that, that's very interesting. So you have a project, um, a radio frequency observatory, uh, that is being planned there. So uh, from a cosmology perspective, Jack, so this is an epoch. Uh, I understand that, um, you know, the, the CMB sort of at 380,000 years from, uh, from uh, Big Bang. So this is post that time, time zone, right? That is what right. we are trying to explore. Yeah, that's, 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 that's correct, Gil. It's, uh, that's the beginning of what's called the Dark Ages of the early universe. So um, the universe at that point is transparent, but there are no stars, no galaxies yet. They're still collapsing in the formation uh, stage. So the dark ages uh, is filled with neutral hydrogen and that hydrogen uh, radiates at low radio frequencies, so below 100 megahertz. And it will allow us to probe the physics of that early universe. So we'll be able to test uh, more thoroughly models of cosmology, um, inflation, uh, and, and also the early stages of star formation to be able to look at time periods that we can't get to with the Hubble Space Telescope or even the upcoming James Webb Space Telescope. So, so this is the era um, as the photons escaped uh, at 380,000 years and before before stars formed, we can actually see using uh, something like Hubble telescope or something along those lines. It's the time where it's just dark and it's just hydrogen mostly. Yeah, that's right. So there's a big gap in our understanding of the universe from this uh, roughly 400,000 years after the Big Bang that you mentioned, the cosmic microwave background, the start of the Dark Ages, until um, where the uh, Hubble Space Telescope begins to probe. And that's about, oh, I would say a half to three quarters of a billion years. So there's a huge gap. All of this interesting uh, physics and astrophysics that's happening Objects are collapsing, forming the first stars. Those stars are coming together to produce the first galaxies. And the only way we can, the only way we know to be able to sample it is using that neutral hydrogen emission and uh, looking at what the impact on the hydrogen is uh, from the formation of those, uh, those stars and galaxies. So it's a unique way of... Yeah. Um, of probing the early universe and the moon, the far side of the moon is the only place we can do this. And, and so the measurements will be just just spectrum, right? Well, they, they would initially using just a, a single, single um, dipole telescopes. Um, we can look at sort of the global signal looking at the spectrum. But then with time, what we want to do is to build an array of radio telescopes uh, on the lunar far side that will give us uh, some spatial resolution. So we'll be able to uh, map out um, the, the density fluctuations of the neutral hydrogen in the early universe and uh, tell us much more about those first stars and galaxies 
um, and also the, the, the early cosmology. So what we want to do is we, we start off with just single antennas on the, on the surface of the uh, far side and work towards building these arrays. Uh, eventually having um, maybe 100,000 dipole antennas on the far side. And so, so, so Jack, um, do, do we have some expectations of density and other things like from standard models? So could we either confirm or potentially reject some of those expectations? We can, yeah. In particular, what we want to do is we really want to test the standard model of cosmology. Um, and in particular, is there any missing physics? And there's some indication from recent observations that um, dark matter may be playing an unexpected role um, in cooling uh, the neutral hydrogen. Uh, and that means that the characteristics of the dark matter, uh, this is a kind of non-gravitational interaction, um, the characteristics of that dark matter is quite different than what we thought. So these experiments actually could be a way of probing the um, dark matter in the universe, which, um, as you know, makes up uh, some 90 plus percent of the mass in the universe. Right, right. And, and right now, we don't really know um, what it is. We don't. Right? We no, have... absolutely. That is a, that's, a, that's an embarrassment, I think, to both the physics and the astrophysics community. It's the dominant form of mass in the universe, and we've not been able to detect it from the ground. Uh, only indirect detections from uh, astrophysics observations. And so uh, is it possible for us to see some, you know, sort of timelines of how that changed and that might give us some ideas how dark matter might have played a role in, in star formation? It, it could, it could. And how it might have also uh, affected the evolution of the universe in maybe ways that um, we don't anticipate. Uh, some of these models um, give dark matter uh, a small electronic charge, um, a fraction of an electron that allows um, then interactions with matter. That again would be quite surprising. So what, what, we, what we inevitably do, Gil, is anytime we turn on a new telescope, particularly at a new wavelength, the history has been, we learn something new and surprising. And I think right. we very much expect that to happen when um, we turn on our first radio telescope from the far side in the next few years. And, and this sounds like a, a really big uh, thing, Jack. So you said thousands of these uh, dipole um, yeah, that, that's eventually, I mean, we start off small, as I mentioned, we start off with a single um, antenna and next year, uh, our first radio um, telescope is going to uh, fly to the moon uh, with one of these small companies that I mentioned to you that NASA has contracted to bring payloads. This is a company called um, Intuitive Machines out of Houston. They're going to bring um, our radio telescope initially is going to be on the, uh, the near side. Um, and then a few years later, that's going to be followed by um, a mission on the far side. So we get this going. Um, and then hopefully by the end of the decade, we're able to put down an initial array that uh, will have 100 or so of these uh, dipole antennas to get us started. And then we just the nice thing about these uh, arrays of radio telescopes is we can just build them over time, maybe even manufacture the um, antennas from the uh, lunar uh, stockpile of material. Yeah, I was about to say what you need is some sort of a self-replicating yeah, process. <laughs> exactly, because when you're doing thousands of these things, uh, you just generate them and then um, put them on a, a rover and the rover takes them out and deposits. You don't necessarily need humans to, um, to do that. And, and so what's the ultimate goal? What, what would be sort of the area that you might cover for this, this whole entire Yeah, area? so it, it really is, is hitting a couple of areas of scientific interest. So 
Um, I would both refer to them as sort of our cosmic origins. So um, cosmologically, it's trying to understand the very first stars and galaxies that were created in the universe that eventually led to our Milky Way and to our sun. So, you know, probing how we, uh, we get there. The other thing that we can do with this array, the other goal is we're going to be looking at nearby exoplanets. Um, and there we're probing um, at these radio frequencies a different aspect of habitability. That is, do these exoplanets have a magnetic field? And we know in the case of the Earth, the magnetic field is really important for life because it shields us from all of the harmful uh, space radiation coming from the sun as well as from you know supernova remnants uh, and material um, supernovae that happen outside the uh, milky way so with these radio frequencies we can actually and in, in an initial array will have the sensitivity necessary to determine um, in looking at these nearby exoplanets which are being discovered daily um, whether or not they have magnetic fields and therefore are they good targets for uh, for habitability. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So the 4,500 or so exoplanets that have been discovered, one attribute we can assign to them is whether they have a magnetic magnetic right. field. So this could fill in the... It fill, could, in, the it fill in the gap and, it's the, and doing this at radio frequencies is the only way uh, that we can do it. And the radio frequencies are very low. They're below the ionospheric cutoff. So once again, it's one of these things that you absolutely must do this from the far side of the moon. Is, uh, is magnetic field a necessary condition for habitability? Well, that's a really good question. I think this is actively debated in the community. Um, we know it's absolutely essential for life on the Earth. Because um, if you look in contrast to Mars, Mars had a magnetic field early on for probably the first few billion years, but then its core cooled, the magnetic field shut down. And as a result, the atmosphere of Mars, which once allowed liquid water on the surface, thinned out uh, over time. And so today, Mars has been transformed into a desert planet. Um, it's really hard to imagine any form of life, certainly on the surface. There may be some uh, some microbial life in the uh, in the subsurface. So here, that that's a good example, a lesson, if you will, of you know how a planet changed dramatically uh, from the time that it initially had a magnetic field to today, in which it has no global magnetic field. So is it is it radiation uh, that it's it's trying to? It is, yeah. The solar wind, the solar wind, which blows from the yeah. sun, uh, it it contains uh, uh, mass uh, and velocity, and so it's very effective at stripping um, atmospheres. It didn't strip the Earth's atmosphere because once again the mag the magnetic field deflects this solar wind, which is made up of charged particles. And so um, it just deflects around the magnetic field, leaves our atmosphere alone. Um, the solar wind, you know, in the case of, of Mars, that, that space radiation just goes right to the surface of Mars these days. And that's not true. If that was true in the Earth, um, we wouldn't be here. Yeah, so um, just Jack, I, I don't know much about this, but I just wanted to get your perspective. So um, there are some um, some hypotheses around uh, planets, around white dwarfs, red dwarfs. Uh, they are not that hot, so they can be closer. Uh, but then, uh, you know, the, the radiation effects could be too high. So if we find a planet that is close but has very high magnetic field, it might still then consider it to be it could, habitable. and that's the kind of, of trade-offs that you want to look at. So uh, many of the nearby stars are these red dwarf stars. Um, they're, they're also called M dwarf stars. They're cooler 
than the sun. Um, they're smaller, um, but they, they also seem to flare a good bit. And the habitable zone where water would exist is closer to those stars as well. So um, I think folks are worried that that environment might not allow uh, life to exist on those planets unless you did have a fairly strong magnetic field. So yeah, it's the kind of thing that you'd want to look at and, and look for and investigate. And we'll have the capability of doing that in just a few years with the uh, radio array on the moon. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, this is an exciting thing, Jack. Um, you have a lot of different objectives. It's going to be a process, a long-term process, uh, from an economic investment perspective, substantially more efficient than the, the missions that we have we have had in the past. So, so given all of that, um, in, in conclusion, Jack, if you look forward, say five years, ten years. What are your expectations? Where will we be in five years and where will we be in 10 years? Yeah, I think um, we'll be on our way back to the moon with humans in five years. I'm not sure we're going to get there uh, quite that time, but I'm confident that uh, certainly uh, by a, a few years after that, we'll have uh, the return of human astronauts to the moon. Um, I also expect um, a good bit of, of scientific infrastructure to grow up. Um, on the moon, not only our radio array that we were uh, talking about and our radio telescopes, but other scientific infrastructure is going to investigate the uh, geology of the moon, understand uh, in different locations, um, mining water ice, turning it into fuel, um, mining other materials on the moon. So um, by the end of the decade, in 10 years, um, I expect a, to see a thriving uh, scientific and um, uh, really in, in industrial uh, entrepreneurial community that has arisen. Excellent. Yeah. Good luck with uh, good luck with this initiative. And uh, thanks so much. You're Jack, welcome, Gail. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.